Hello, my friends. Welcome once again to the Religious Studies Project. My name is David Robertson. And my name is Christopher Carter, and we are brought to you by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. And the North American Association for the Study of Religions is an apt person to mention at the beginning of the episode this week, as this is another interview recorded for us by Brad Stoddart at the AAR conference uh, last November in San Antonio, Texas. And it's an interview with... Finbar Curtis and the subject is religious freedom in America but I'm sure that they're going to take a fairly critical theoretical approach so let's pass over. Hello this is Brad Stoddard with the Religious Studies Project. Today I have the pleasure of talking with Professor Finbar Curtis. Finbar is the as an assistant professor at Georgia Southern University who recently published his first book The Production of American Religious Freedom published with NYU Press. Uh, Finbar welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me here. It's my very first podcast. So. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Happy to do this. Uh, will you introduce the readers to your project? Well, the project is, as you mentioned, Production of American Religious Freedom, and it's eight case studies about religious freedom. And it's basically arguing that religious freedom is a malleable, fluid, shifting concept that can be used for a variety of political and legal purposes. And so therefore, one way I framed that in the introduction was by saying there is no such thing as religious freedom, uh, which is one of those things that you say when you want to be provocative, I guess. But um, a lot of what I mean by that is that if you say something like, I support religious liberty, that's a classic question-begging claim. You know, it's like, well, what specifically do you mean by that? And my argument is that there's always a more specific political agenda. There's always somebody who is trying to distribute social power every time they make a claim about religious liberty. And so therefore, we need to think more critically about the basic way we often talk about religious liberty, which is, I have a religion, and I want it to be free from the state or something like that. Um, and I want to think more critically about, well, how do religious persons get produced and how do those claims get produced and where do they come from and why do people make them um, and how do they interact with other people's claims of religious freedom and how do those contests play out and that's a lot of what I'm trying to look at in these eight case studies. As you mentioned the bulk of this book focuses on those eight case studies spanning almost 200 years so can you elaborate on that a little bit more how do these case studies come together to form a cohesive narrative or do they? They do not. Um, and that's one of the odd things about the thesis, which is um, I'm sort of making this weird claim that um, these do, this, this does not add up. These, the center doesn't hold. Uh, that what you have is fragmentation um, and contestation all the way down. And in a way, that was part of the process of this book. And, um, you know, my, my dissertation, which uh, was on American populism, and it was on William James Bryant and Al Smith. And those are two chapters of this book. Um, and other chapters I put in because I happened to have written something on them, either in a conference paper or in graduate school. So there really was no guiding logic to the selection of these cases, other than uh, I wrote a paper on Louisa May Alcott in a seminar one time. And I wrote a paper on Malcolm X in a seminar one time. Um, and so I was just trying for very practical reasons, because I was a contingent faculty member, didn't necessarily have a lot of time for new research. Uh, how can I take stuff that I've written on religious freedom, smush it together and make it a book, and I'll figure out how it fits together later, right? And so I 
wrote this book um, by putting these eight chapters together. And I was really kind of working on the individual chapters. So they each have their own argument in some ways or, or multiple arguments. And, um, you know, and I was really under a lot of time pressure. I was doing a lot of service work and teaching work and the jobs that I had. Um, and so the final year of writing this book was tough. I mean, this book was written on nights and weekends and I was trying to make a deadline. And, um, and so I sort of met the deadline, not quite met the deadline, but missed it by a few weeks, handed it in. And I realized, crap, I forgot to write an epilogue and I had promised to write an epilogue. And so I was, um, sitting in a coffee shop in Seattle where my dear friend was, um, getting uh, an angiogram. So I was kind of stressed out and I was trying to write this, um, um, this epilogue. And I'm like, how do these things fit together? How do these pieces go together? And um, at the time, the Navy decided to attack Seattle, which it does every summer. It didn't attack it, but it's buzzing it. And the big plane flies over um, and kids are crying and everybody's freaking out. Like, what's going on? And they realize, oh, this is an air show that Seattle does every year. Um, and I look up and it's just like U.S. Navy. And I'm like, America does not add up. Like, this is just – and I was like, you know what? That's my book. That's my thesis. And this is one of those weird eureka moments. I'm probably remembering that long, wrong. I know enough about memory to know that that's probably not how it happened. But I'm telling myself that, that that's how it happened. And so – and I thought, you know, that's really the story. Religion – is a kind of post hoc category where we take a lot of disparate social phenomena and we label it religion and then try to figure out how it's coherent, you know, and how it ties together. But really the tying together is a, a later order thing. You know, we take the stuff that we've called religion for a lot of different reasons and figure out why it's religion. And I said, you know, that's really the thesis of this book. This doesn't come together. It doesn't add up. And so therefore we have to think more critically about fragments. Um, and um, and so that's kind of how those eight chapters came together. They came together largely for arbitrary reasons. I tried to kind of tie them into a book about religious freedom. And then I decided, really, they don't come together. And I'm, I'm cool with that. When I read your book, I get the impression that you're in conversation or that you're motivated by some scholars and more specifically some theorists who don't make it into the footnotes. Uh, is that accurate? Yeah, I mean – and if it, if it is accurate, who's informing your, I mean, your theory? The, the main people probably are in the footnotes. I mean, I think that, um, you know, Tracy Fessenden and John Modern would be two obvious interlocutors on the American religion side. Um, so I think I'm kind of extending what they're doing, although maybe I'm maybe a little more fragmented, certainly than, than John's book. I mean, I think John is looking at epistemic unities a little more. Maybe that, maybe that unity is unfair. But, uh, whereas so in my first chapter, it's very much like the similar arguments that, that, that modern is making. But then other chapters might really conflict with that in some ways. The Dow Smith argument's very different. You know, it's not necessarily talking about a Protestant secular. And so because for me, you know, the Protestant secular might be one fragment among other fragments, I might be saying somewhat different things. So that's kind of related to them. The other big social theories that do get footnoted would be Ernesto LaCloud, Giorgio Gombin, when I'm thinking about questions of sovereignty or populism. And also for me, a big one about freedom is Patricia Williams. You know, I read Alchemy of Race and Rights in high school for some reason. And that's just always been a book that has, you know, uh, focused my thinking about the problem of freedom. And, um, and so she's, I think, a, a major figure. I think the ones that aren't in the footnotes would be like, 
the old critical theorists that I read and really shaped me. So someone like Walter Benjamin, you know, Friedrich Nietzsche. There's not a single quote for Friedrich Nietzsche, but in college I named my hard drive Friedrich because he was so important to me when I read The Genealogy of Morals that changed my life. And so it's like those figures are so fundamental to the way I think about and read text. I didn't actually explicitly engage them much. I mean, maybe there's a quote from those guys in there, but um, another big figure is Susan Sontag, who's somebody who's really important to me, um, and thinking about aesthetics, and that shows up especially in the D.W. Griffith chapter, but maybe somebody I didn't explicitly cite. So a lot of the people I didn't explicitly cite would be the kind of classic canon, people like Adorno, Benjamin, Nietzsche, who are very important in shaping me, but didn't necessarily somebody I explicitly engage when I'm, I'm trying to write for a broader audience. I think the other thing on theory for this book, and it goes back to the editorial questions that we were talking about. Um, I was trying to write a book for Americanists, right? And, and in a way, the, when I was selling the earlier book on populism, I was like, no, I want to talk to political theorists and I want to talk to social theorists. And so I'm going to write dense political theory for other political theorists. And if people who study the U.S. don't understand it, I don't care. Um, but I thought, no, this book is in the Religion in North America series. Um, and I want to be able to talk about some themes from Michel Foucault, but I'm kind of presuming that the reader of this book maybe knows what the Second Great Awakening is, knows something about American history, but maybe hasn't read Foucault. And I want to be like, okay, I, I want to talk about this guy because I think he gives us some ways of thinking about subjectivity and surveillance and governmentality, and these are really useful concepts, but I'm not assuming you know this, so I'm going to explain it. So... I'll cite Foucault, but I'll tell you about it. I'll cite Giorgio Gombin, but I'll explain what I'm doing here. Uh, I don't know if I succeeded in that or not, but that was sort of my goal as going into this. Because I do think in reference to, say, someone like uh, Modern's book, I think, exactly what I was thinking. you know, I've noticed that the, the, it tends to break down in two ways. There's people who, a lot of the critiques of it tend to be just, I don't really understand what you're talking about. And... Um, and a lot of the people who like it are people who've already read Foucault, you know, who've already read the, the, those other interlocutors. And so I think that book is, you know, incredibly important. And I think it does that, that work of pushing those theorists in there. But I was thinking, well, I want to talk to some of those people who couldn't make heads or tails of that book. And so my book, I think, I think is more accessible. I don't know. I mean, it's hard for me to know because I'm writing it. So I, I sort of, I guess, understand what I'm saying. But that was sort of part of the agenda. Like I want to kind of, be able to reach that audience. And so therefore, it's not as heavily theoretical, citational, however we say that, as, as it might otherwise be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think the people who've really engaged modern book the best are actually literary critics, you know, are people over in English or anthropology. And in a way, that's been his most receptive audience, the audience that's actually been able to engage the arguments a little more. So it requires a prior training and education in critical theory to get it. Um, and that was the book that I thought I wanted to write originally. And then I kind of just, it, and it was making those editorial concessions where I said, okay, I'll write this book and hopefully somebody in American religions might be able to engage it. Um, but we'll see. The book is about the production, or the book is titled The Production of American Religious Freedom. It's about contradictions in the rhetoric of American religious freedom. Yet there is a tremendous amount of language that we typically associate with economics. So you talk about the economy, capitalism, consumers, markets, entrepreneurs, free market, market choices, market logic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So how does this economic language relate to the project? 
Well, you know, it was originally called The Economy of American Religious Freedom. That was the kind of running title for the book right up until it got published. And one of the reasons for the change was the way I was using the term economy was the more classical sense, the like of dispensation, you know, the idea of governance of a household, like like distribution of resources. And I and one of the things about economy now, of course, is it means the GDP. We we think of that in terms of that discrete economic sphere um, that's distinct from politics or religion that has to do with money. Um, and so so some of the book deals with economy in that conventional sense. So uh, the Louisa May Alcott chapter, the uh, William Jennings Bryan chapter, and the final chapter on the most sacred of all property in Hobby Lobby all deal with money or, or, or economic critiques in the way we use the term economy now. Um, but because not all of the book was about that, we kind of changed it to production because we realized that people were going to see this as a book just about economics and they were going to be really disappointed by the Malcolm X chapter, which doesn't necessarily talk about that, but it might talk about the distribution of resources in some broader sense. Um, so that's one sense. It does deal with economic questions. But also, I think, in terms of the economic metaphors that we often use to talk about, say, the free market of religion in America, what, what do we mean by that? Um, that oftentimes we use a very old-fashioned um, supply-side model um, in other words, we presume that we produce resources, uh, you know, religious resources, people consume them, and markets are infinitely expanding, right? So we have free consumers who make choices from a marketplace of religious options, and that's awesome. And we love that because we're Americans and we love capitalism. Um, and I thought, well, but wait a second, that's not how capitalism works. Um, that goes back to that critical theories of reading someone like Adorno. Um, capitalism produces consumers. You know, it produces people to make religious choices. So I want to think about economy in that sense, not as infinite resources, but as finite resources and how we work we contest and compete in a, a social world uh, over scarce resources and, and how religious freedom might be one scarce, re, scarce and contested resource. And so I wanted to think about economy in that sense. How or to what extent are you engaging Nathan's ha Nathan Hatch's argument in his uh, highly influential uh, The Democratization of American Christianity? Well, I think that follows off that, that, that point about uh, – I think – I actually think that, you know, the democratization of American Christianity is very descriptively accurate of something, right? There's a process of democratization going on where we're seeing sort of market forces or at least a, an understanding of how market forces might work taking over American religions. And I'm actually very sympathetic to Amanda Porterfield's critique of that. And I think her book on, you know, critiquing Hatch is a great book. Um, but I also wanted to think about then what Hatch might not necessarily be thinking about, which is, well, how are consumers produced in the first place? You know, how, how do we actually produce the people who go about making these free choices, right? So, so on one hand, there's a question of, uh, I mean, Porterfield's critique of Hatch is that, well, maybe people didn't, they want a whole lot more authority than you're giving them credit for. Not everybody is necessarily so invested in some kind of individual freedom. Um, but I want to say, no, what it is, is it's the individual freedom that you're choosing that allows you to govern yourself, right? So it's it's a more complex play of power and subject formation, right? And that's also the probably the most Foucauldian chapter, that first chapter, which really takes on, on Nathan Hatch's book. Okay, very good. 
What are the legal and political implications of this work? I'm not sure. I'm still figuring that out. Um, but I think probably the last chapter, which is in some sense the most ambitious and most crazy chapter in some ways, um, is trying to think about um, the, these arbitrary lines that we draw between public and private, which of course are invented as institutional forces. Um, but they have consequences. And one of the consequences is this increasing privatization of a lot of political life, the increasing ways in which uh, a lot of our whatever our public is, um, say through state institutions that try to, you know, protect the social welfare are shrinking, right? And one way they're shrinking is often through, uh, arguments about religious freedom. Um, and so that's an interesting problem, you know, so to what extent, um, are we creating more spaces for, um, opting out of, social engagement with other people? Um, and what are the consequences when we have all these spaces where we opt out of social engagement for other people? And so I think the political consequences are to think of that, right? And to think about um, the problem of freedom and liberty in American society, which is often taken as a license to say, screw you, I don't care about anybody else's problems. Um, and I think we have to think critically about ideologies that say, screw everybody, I don't care about anybody else's problems, because maybe that's part of me that's an old-fashioned liberal who worries about that kind of, of worldview. What are the initial reactions to your book? And I wonder, are legal scholars or, uh, responding to your book differently than American religious historians? Well, historians of American religion. It's still pretty new. you know. Right. So it came out the summer and I guess officially came out in August um, so the only responses we've gotten so far have been pretty generous. Um, and they're probably from people who are inclined to be generous. They're the people who are kind of from my, would share my view of, uh, you know, what American religions is doing. That is, it should be more integrated in terms of social theory and, and, and history. Um, we'll see what, if legal scholars even read this or if it, if it, if it falls into their world, uh, how they might react. Uh, certainly I'm not a lawyer, you know, and so I don't, I don't, and even in the final chapter, which probably is the one that deals most with law, I wasn't really trying to analyze the law and I'm not really proposing this is how constitutional cases or RIFRA cases or statutory cases should be decided. Um, that's not really my job, but I am interested in the sort of political and cultural implications of those legal decisions. And so that's really kind of what I focus on. So I don't know if legal scholars will see this as relevant because I'm not really giving any guidelines about how we should actually understand religion and law or how, how those things should be adjudicated. Um, I expect, so I'm, I, so in terms of what the response is, I don't know yet. Um, my guess is that, um, some people will be interested in the interdisciplinary approaches. And we've seen that on the three blog posts that came out on the U.S. Religion blog and the uh, one review by Benji Rolski in Reading Religion. Um, and yeah, as I said, they were tended to be sympathetic with the project. Um, but I'm sure there, there are some historians out there who will read this and say, this is not history. And they will be correct in some sense, because it's clearly not a history of religious freedom in America. It is essays that are trying to work through conceptual problems in American religions and that are using theories, sometimes more obvious, sometimes less obviously, to, to accomplish those ends. So I do still expect some of the pushback from people who think that, for example, 
it's my job to describe Al Smith in a way that Al Smith would understand himself. Because clearly I don't do that. Clearly the language that I'm using to interpret Al Smith is not Al Smith's own language. Um, and so that marks me as a certain kind of political theorist. Um, and I, you know, I look forward to having those conversations. But as I mentioned earlier, one, I'm hoping that a historian who might not necessarily be reading that canon of critical theory might still be able to understand some of these arguments in the way that they might not understand Talal Assad or somebody like that, that, that maybe these will be accessible to Americanists and maybe those productive conversations will happen. But I do expect some people are just going to hate it, right? That, that's just inevitable. And so, I, you know, I look forward to, to seeing how those reactions play out as well. Um, but uh, yeah, so that, that's my sense of possible reception in the future, but we'll see. Yeah. Well, it is an interesting book. It covers a lot of ground and it's quite provocative. So I uh, wish you the best of luck with the reviews and thank you very much for spending some time with me. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks a lot. It's been great. Wonderful to hear from Brad there. And I'm sure that interview would have taken on a slightly different tone had it been recorded um, in the past couple of weeks on the topic of religious freedom in America. Hmm. Uh, yes, that's uh, an interesting thought. Um as ever, do come back um, on Thursday for a response to this interview. I'm sure it's going to be very interesting indeed. And do check out our back archive of those responses. Katie Astin is doing an excellent job of curating them. And if you would like to write a response yourself, uh, please get in touch at editors at religiousstudiesproject.com. Talking of getting in touch and wanting to do things yourself, uh, we are just as we um, just before we started recording this, um, uh, welcoming some new members to the RSP team. Um, we asked for applications at the end of last year for new interviewers and uh, new audio editors, and this week they should all have been contacted. The audio people will have already started the course. Um, uh, and training to be editing the episodes and hopefully um, in a few months time they'll be doing all of the audio, audio editing for the episodes of the RSP so that's a very exciting uh, development for us. It is very exciting indeed. Um, an interviewer who is the opposite of new to the RSP is um, the man sitting opposite me, David Robertson, um, who is speaking next week with Bruce Sullivan um, on a topic that we heard Bruce speak about um, back at the end of 2012 um, on yoga in museums. So that's guaranteed to be a interesting and uh, quite enlightening podcast. I think. It's Yeah, it's a very interesting interview because Bruce is a uh, very was a very sort of traditional Asianist, a lot of study in Hinduism and uh, sort of classical culture um, in India, but has recently in the last few years moved out into exploring its connections with popular culture. He published a paper in Implicit Religion, uh, the journal which, of course, the Religious Studies co-produces with Equinox Publishing on themes from the Bhagavad Gita in science fiction. And these... Uh, his current work is about um, the use of um, primarily Hindu, but also uh, kind of Buddhist ideas in um, museums and popular mm. culture and public mm. spaces. Yeah, so, ostensibly secular spaces in quotation marks. Indeed. And there's some really interesting observations about the tensions there. And they're not always what you would think. They're not always the obvious thing of, oh, well, we're appropriating some, um, you know, ancient culture for commercial reasons. Mm. It, it cuts a lot deeper than that. So uh, do come back next week for that interview. 
And as ever, remember about our Facebook page, Twitter feed, Google+, iTunes, YouTube, and our Amazon.com.ca and .co.uk links. That's us through our usual spiel, so all that's left is for David to say... Thanks for listening.